All right, it is the end of 2021, and this is the Fight Business Podcast. I'm your host, Patrick Auger, and today we'll be answering your questions, talking about Jake Paul pay-per-view buys, Francis Ngannou contract shenanigans and everything going on with that. And last but not least, we're going to talk about the outlook for 2022 in terms of the MMA industry as a whole. So first off, just want to say, really appreciate everybody that watched and listened this year. Best year of the podcast by far. Um, I know, especially the past couple of weeks, there's been some inconsistency because of my work schedule and some other things, but we are smoothing that out starting in 2022. Probably going to take another week off after this one and then dive right back in second week of January. But again, just thank you so much for watching, listening, all of that. Love you guys. Loved interacting with you guys. Love your questions. All that stuff is fantastic. So thank you for the support. Got the timestamps at the bottom as always. And with that in mind, let's go ahead and dive right in to the last FBP of 2021, which you may or may not be seeing post New Year's Day because schedules are a little hectic. Let's dive right in. All right, so the first thing I want to cover today is a question brought to me really by two people said in two different ways. Uh, at note, not Joey PJ on Twitter asked, can you do a cost benefit analysis on having fight nights at the apex instead of going on the road? It looks like they're going to Columbus in March and then a picture of the March 26th fight night uh, ticket sales on sale soon. And we also had Justo Ferreira, apologize if I'm saying that incorrectly, do you think the UFC will go back on the road as much or have they gotten used to the time and money saved hosting fights at the apex? Great questions. And it's important because we know from Dana White's own admission, right? Um, would have been, I believe, 2018 at the Chicago show. The apex is something that White had been working on for a while. It was designed to bring more fights and more content to fans and allow the UFC to produce their own content rather than having to go to, again, different arenas, different places to shoot various vignettes or, you know, say the ultimate fighter or what have you. It was designed to help cost, cut costs. I also think on a side note, we won't go into too much today, but Dana also spoke about having like a fighter hotel during the pandemic, right? I think that will eventually happen too, where they'll have a lodging area for fighters to stay at so that they can come and use the apex and all of that as well. It will help reduce logistics costs. They won't have to move people to and from the arena, all that fun stuff. Logistics add up, right? Flying, let's say you have a 14 fight fight card, flying 28 fighters out to a particular area, plus at least one coach round trip, giving them all hotel rooms, some nicer than other, depending on their champion status or contender status. And then adding in the production crew having to be flown out or driven out wherever. Um, all of that type of stuff adds up pretty quickly. It's not, you know, going to break the bank by any means, but it really does add up. So that's just one type of cost. But a lot of people don't understand that event production costs, if you're going to a particular arena or, or a different area, there are a lot of costs associated with that as well. So to answer this question, because we don't know the overhead that the UFC has for hosting events in the Apex, I reached out to a couple people. I didn't think I was going to hear back over the holidays, but 
and I did not. But if I do hear back, I will update and let you guys know. Um, but we don't know the exact cost of the overhead for the UFC for using the Apex, but we can get an idea of how much it costs just to produce an event in a particular place. What we're going to use to get a, a again, estimated guess, it's, it's not going to be right on the money, it should be in the ballpark, though, um, is we're going to use an article from Mr. MMA Business himself, John Nash, titled Zufa Finances, the Economics of a UFC Event, uh, dated September 23rd, 2019. And then I'm also going to use some knowledge I have from a couple of friends I reached out to. One is an events coordinator for a arena at a 200, 300,000 population city. It's their biggest arena where they have a lot of bands or uh, events come through. WWE comes through there. Um, you have some older 80 bands. You don't get any big giant names. UFC did a fight night there ages ago. Um, God, it must have been over nearly over 10 years ago, um, but haven't been through since. So we can't use, unfortunately, actual UFC costs, even if they're dated. But... They do have a good grasp on, again, the types of event costs that a lot of people wouldn't think about. Um, some of the different contracts, part of the um, concessions that sometimes get rolled into that, which is a whole nother thing. Um, so we're gonna use that. And then we're also going to use a conversation I had with a buddy who's done some tour management essentially for a couple of bands um, and has, has handled not the legal aspect, but kind of been the project coordinator, making sure everything is signed, everything is documented, and has seen the numbers in terms of costs um, for hosting certain bands. It's not going to be, again, exact by any means. And and we're not talking, you know, we're not talking Ariana Grande or Lady Gaga, massive, massive pop artists. We're talking older 80s bands and a couple of rock bands that you may recognize some of the names. I'm not going to go into it because then you might figure out who this person is. I'm not sure they were supposed to give me the info, um, but they'd be recognizable to a fair amount of you. Um, so again, that'll give us an idea roughly on how much the bands get paid versus the actual costs of a particular arena. But a huge caveat with all this outside of we're using these three sources to get an estimated guess is that depending on where the event is, drastically changes the costs, right? If you're hosting a UFC fight night in Wichita, Kansas versus a UFC pay-per-view in Chicago, it's going to be a massive, massive difference. Um, and we'll also break down pay-per-view versus fight night because that also makes a very big deal in terms of cost revenue and how much you the UFC actually has made off of this stuff. So all those caveats out there now so you know what I'm working with. Let's first take a look at the article by John Nash, which again focuses on what we know from the antitrust lawsuit and hearings that happened in two, uh, 2016 or so. Um, again, he, or, sorry, this is 2019. It's been a long couple of years. I'm sure some of you know that. Uh, <laughs> but so the information we have from this article, highly encourage you to read the whole thing. Um, one thing that stands out and that will help us here is UFC event level costs. 
and it has five events listed with the particular dates, then the event costs, excluding fighter compensation, event revenue, and then fighter expenses. You've got UFC Live, Vera versus Jones on March 21st of 2010. That's $1.2 million in event costs. Uh, UFC 111, $111, $111, $111, $111, $111, $111, $111, $111, $111, $111, $111, $111, $111, $111, $111, $111, $111, $111, $111, $111, $111, $111, $111, $111, $111, $111, $111, $111, $111, $111, $111, $111, $111, $
you, you've got fight nights here that technically either broke even or were a little bit of a loss in terms of just event costs and event revenue, right? It's still overall profitable because of their TV deals, what they're getting out of it. But fight night versus pay-per-view, massive difference. I mean, just absolutely massive difference. So how much of that is production cost when we're talking about, say, the 1.4 average? Let's roll with that right now. How much of that is overhead that's going to be there no matter what versus how much of that is due to logistics, due to a particular deal with an arena, et cetera, et cetera. Well, from my conversation with the events coordinator at the arena in this midside city, generally costs are pretty, pretty stable, right? For what they do Um, in their particular role, you're not looking at an event isn't going to upcharge an extra, you know, 200 grand to rent out the arena because it's a massive act. Um, if anything, they may cut the price a little bit if it's a big enough act that they think will sell out and if they hit certain stipulations of seat sold and all this stuff. But, you know, in that particular case, they basically do around 50 to 100,000 depending on the capacity needed and the dates needed, that's also another factor, um, 50 to 100,000 to rent out the arena. And then they may do a concession split where, you know, either the concessions are all wrapped into um, the arena's particular revenue and cost. So if a, a band, let's say, I don't know what, what bands are popular nowadays. I'm old. Uh, let's say, uh, I don't know. Let's, let's say that foreigner an eighties band. Cause that's an example of one that came through that particular arena, um, came by, they're paying the cost of 50 to hundred grand to rent out the arena. And then they are basically paying a set cost to cover workers to be working the concession stands. And then the concession, all the concession stands go back into the arena itself. Um, but in other cases, they had mentioned this person that I know had mentioned that sometimes they'll actually want to split concession sales and will restructure the deal and, and pay a higher upfront cost in order to get part of the concessions because they think that more people will end up going to the concessions. So, hey, we'll pay you an extra $40,000 on top of your normal rate. And then we want to split all the concessions down the middle 50-50, and we want that revenue there. That's a little bit more rare, to be honest, but it's a small town arena, it can happen. Um, And that's pretty much it. So there are other costs with utilities and things like that put into it, but in that particular arena, you're looking at, you know, 100K, I guess, on average is what they said. Um, And that's a smaller market, so it's not that bad. But with the tour manager friend that I have, you know, they had seen instances where you may have a band cost, you know, 500 grand to appear for a, an hour long set. And the cost of just pre- event production, all of that and setting up and getting the stage up and all that stuff, which is a big factor in costs and all that fun things is moving again, the octagon, moving all the lights, making sure it's, all that fun stuff is good to go. Having the cam- the TVs in the right place. All of that aspect of it, 
you know, you may have a a band have command a 500k show uh, fee for an hour, and then it costs 250k to basically do event costs because again you've got to work on the stage you've got to pay all the roadies you've got to set up the electrical you've got to do all this stuff it's a much more complicated process and he had said that more than likely that's what the ufc would air the site on right is you're looking at a you know 250 or 500 thousand dollar event costs just for getting everything set up doing all that fun stuff um that type of thing so I would imagine if you're looking at 1.4 million on average, based on the conversations I've had, you're probably saving around 30 to 35% of your costs by doing it at the apex, minimum. Could be even more than that, depending on, again, um, what the actual overhead is for the UFC. I don't know if they're using, you know, I don't know if they're using their own staff for manning production, right? Manning the cameras, all that stuff. Or are they paying, you know, uh, paying a subcontractor to do that? Do they have to pay subcontractors to do that when they're traveling rather than using their own people? All that fun stuff. Um, Don't know any of those details, but I got to imagine in the conversations I've had, you're probably looking again at 30% cost savings minimum. Just because there's no logistics involved, there's no extra fees or or riders or contract negotiations, you know, even if it's just going back and forth with a particular arena or, you know, particular city to bring the UFC there, right? Especially if it's international or even Hawaii, right? Which was a big thing where they were trying to get so much money um, to bring a UFC show out to Hawaii. Like that takes time and, and is man hours, which... If it's legal, you're looking at, I don't know, $300 an hour for a lawyer, even if they're your own, you know, counsel that you're paying more on a salary rate, that still is probably added up in terms of the overall project costs. If if I have to have my my counsel review and go back and forth on red lines for, you know, two days with a particular entity, I and I normally bill counsel out, out at something around $300 per hour if it's to a, I don't know, a a project or a service that they would normally do, I mean, you you add that in the, the total cost. So that's just one smaller cost, but there's a lot of things like that is, is what I'm getting at, right? All of these little things that you might not think about add up very, very, very quickly. Good example of it is, is if you ever go and look at your credit card bill at the end of the month, if you're like me, a lot of times you're like, wait, how did it get this high? And you, it's never one giant purchase, or one like major thing, right? It's if it's higher than I thought by a significant amount, it's usually a lot of little stuff that added up here and there. That's just the nature of costs in this type of uh, situation. So I'm going to say, again, with the tons of caveats I've added to this, you're looking at 30 to 35% cost savings. So anywhere from you know, four hundred to six hundred thousand dollars if if it's um one point four, one point five. We'll just round up and say one point five. So five hundred thousand dollars if it's a one point five million dollar cost, uh, is is a pretty good guess. That would be my estimate. Um could be wrong. 
Again, I don't know what the overhead is on the Apex. Could be much more cost savings. Could hypothetically be less, but from what I know from adjacent type of situations, um, substitutes as you would in business, the cost of that, those substitutes, that's what I, I get a feel for. You're looking at saving 30% or so. So to go to the second part of that question, or rather the second question uh, by Mr. Ferreira is, do you think the UFC will go back on the road as much or have they gotten used to time and money saved? I think that there are a couple, there are a couple of, of things to consider here. One, they're going to do events at the Apex every year. I can't imagine they completely abandon the Apex. That would be foolish in my opinion. Um, just from a headache standpoint for them, making sure that travel's all worked out and everything. I, I can't imagine they don't do some shows at the Apex. But two, I think a big part of this is going to <clears throat> is going to depend on what ticket sales look like at these first events compared to what they would have been in 2019 and whether these events are are already contractually obligated. I think that's the biggest factor. Here's what I mean by that. A lot of these events were announced either in 2019, at the end of 2019, or early 2020. Actually, most of them early 2020 at this point. Uh, but then coronavirus came around, right? Canceled all of them. It was a whole thing. But a lot of these events could have force majeure clauses in them, which essentially would postpone these events and then have them happen once it's deemed possible and once it's deemed safe enough. I had tickets to a Tame Impala show in Austin, uh, bought for me and my friends, was supposed to happen, I think originally April or May of 2020, I don't even remember, um, or June, but obviously got canceled, got moved around. We tried to get refunds. We didn't buy them through Ticketmaster. We bought them through the box office to save some money which we later regretted, Try, tried to get refunds. We couldn't because we were told, oh, they're going to reschedule at a later date. That later date ended up being in November of this year. So I couldn't refund my tickets for over, I don't know, around 14 months, 15 months, because they had essentially said, no, we're still going to have the event. We're going to push it back. You'll notice that Columbus was one of the events that was scheduled prior to the pandemic happening. If you start to see a fight night Austin, because I knew there was one coming originally supposed to come in the summer uh, to Austin of 2020. If you see any of the other fight nights from 2020 that were announced prior to the pandemic canceling them being where the UFC is going, that might be because they're held contractually to do that. And if that's the case, well, yeah, they have to go back out on the road. And it's going to appear that they go back out on the road because they've already essentially locked in and paid for this stuff. They kind of need to go perform uh, or they can bite the bullet and just eat that cost if it's really, again, that much of an issue. But I wouldn't be shocked if they basically just take that announced schedule from 2020 and shift it over to 2022. I would not be shocked at all. So... 
that's probably what you're going to see. That would be my guess as to what it looks like for this year. Beyond that, again, I think it will come down to A, how well are these events selling out? B, have they raised ticket prices and are they still selling out with higher prices? I fully expect... We'll see when the the tickets go on sale here on January 14th. But I would fully expect for tickets to be more expensive than they were prior to the pandemic. Um, I think that's going to be a way for the UFC to kind of cover some of the costs. And that inflation is super high right now. So expect them to take that into account. And then lastly, how much would it hurt their brand to go back to the apex more, right? Could easily see if they crunch the numbers and it turns out, no, it's all good to do the apex where we're definitely making more money doing that than going on the road, et cetera, et cetera. I could easily see them going on the road for 2022. And then in 2023, massively scaling that back and saying, Oh, well, we just couldn't get the deals done. It didn't make sense. All this stuff. If you really want us here, well, you'll pay us. And then also using that for hard bar, hardball negotiations. When they go to these arenas, right? They may say, you know what? Your normal fee is 50 K 200 to 300 a uh, thousand person town. We want 25 K because you know, we're the UFC. We're big. We're going to bring in a bunch of tourism, all that stuff. So we want that much. And if you don't, that's fine. Cause we can just put it on at the apex. I fully expect them to use it in negotiations again, not for the 200 and 300 K market. Uh, but for bigger cities, wouldn't be shocked at all. Pay-per-views. I think they'll still continue to do at arenas. Um, you probably end up losing quite a bit of revenue by, well, you know you do, actually, if you look at John's article, uh, by doing a pay-per-view in the Apex versus in an arena that you can near sell out. So pay-per-views will continue to be in arenas, but fight nights, I don't know. I personally think they'll be semi-normal for 2020 because of existing obligations, and then 2023, they'll start to scale back. But uh, yeah, I, I can't imagine that's not the move here. So that would be my guess to those questions. I hope I answered your guys' questions in a way that you understood. Let me know if I didn't or if you have any follow-ups. I will gladly talk to you more about this. But that's the information I have on that particular question. Next question I had, and this one was a doozy because of just how you define it, uh, was from fan of the show, Abraham Litwin Logan. Which promotion has made up the most ground in terms of trying to be some form of a serious competitor to the UFC in 2021? Conversely, which promotion lost the most ground? Great question. And really, really depends on how you define it. Um, It's hard for me not to say one championship lost the most ground. And let's start with that. Which one lost the most ground? Um, But then they ended up with that series funding, (laughs) um, which we don't even know is is if that money is actually there or not, which is a whole nother opaque thing to dive into um, that I am not equipped to dive into. I've been too busy to look into it. I know um, John Nash and... uh, you know, the show money episode, their their holiday show money episode, they, they talk about it. Go listen to the holiday show money episode is for, for all of that breakdown. But 
from an appearance standpoint, you can't say one championship because it appears that they have this new round of funding. They're looking to start to do more events in the U.S. It's going to be a whole thing, despite the abysmal ratings that they've had um, with TNT shows, the several cancellations of shows due to uh, coronavirus impacting their schedule, all that other stuff. If that money is real, if they really got that investor funding and we're able to we're, we're able to get it from those those particular partners and i mean that's uh, that that's a win that that's technically at least at least staying the course if it's not then <laughs> if it's not then yeah they're they're the easy pick for have lost the most ground because it was a rough year for them but i'm going to assume which is a very dangerous thing to do in this situation but i'm going to assume that that funding their latest round of funding is real and so i'm going to assume that at least on the appearance front right they have held their ground slash made up some ground because they're going to start moving into american markets they've had this back all this stuff so i'm going to assume they're actually in okay shape if that's the case pfl has lost the most ground in my opinion. Um, and and it's pretty easy to see why if you take one out of the equation. One and PFL are kind of close if they don't get that funding, if one doesn't get that kind of funding. But PFL has just had not the ratings they need for their championship events and really on television in general. Um, not the retention of key players that they want uh kayla harrison right was going to hop in the ring and challenge amanda nunez dana white pretty much revealed that much uh, harrison has been talking trash to pena all this stuff it, it very much seems that kayla harrison has signed with the ufc i don't know that it's official i don't remember if it was actually officially announced but it really seems like she signed with the UFC. If you go back and look at the crowd footage of when Pena, Pena submits uh, Nunez, everyone's going wild. Harrison is cursing a bunch. She got moved to the front row from her seat. She was almost certainly going to be brought into the ring and they were going to do a stare down and try and do a super fight. That to me means she signed to the UFC. I'm going under that assumption. So you've lost the PFL, your, your homegrown talent that you've built up, right? You didn't get the ratings that you wanted out of it. Uh, you don't have a renewal for ESPN to continue broadcast. They've got other things in the work, but, you know, with Fubo TV on this uh, Challenger series and stuff, but you do not have a deal with ESPN, which was a big deal. And I'm assuming it's because they're not returning the numbers they want. And your biggest star that you've grown is now going to the UFC. Not to mention all these other guys you signed in the offseason of the PFL where they didn't do well, right? You, you did not get Fabricio Verdum in the heavyweight finals you, or in the playoffs. You didn't get Pettis. You didn't get McDonald. You didn't get a lot of these guys that were supposed to be bigger names to draw viewers, which, again... I love the merit system. I loved that 
it, it kept it exciting for me as a hardcore purist. But for the casual fans, that's not going to reel them in, right? So you, you lost all of that. You had Clarissa Shields lose her second MMA fight. It's not good. You, you definitely lost ground. Um, yeah, there. you know what? It, just in terms of thinking about where they were last year compared to this year and won, even if the money going on with one championship is kind of a, you know, cloak and daggers type of thing. Uh, I'd still say PFL has lost the most ground. Thinking about it out loud. It, it just is what it is. Um, I want the PFL to continue to move forward. I know they've got more investment coming. They've got that challenger series. I think they'll have another shot, but they've definitely had a rough year. If you had had, real competition for Harrison or Harrison kind of making a statement and saying, you know, I'm going to keep running through people and doing my thing over here. Um, that'd be one thing, especially if in the other brackets you had Pettis winning, you had Verdum winning, McDonald, Brendan Laughlin, right? Like you, you, you have some of those bigger names actually make it to the finals or become champions. I think you're in good shape, but that's not what happened this year. You had a lot of of setbacks for people they paid a lot of money for that didn't deliver the content that they needed. So yeah, it's PFL PFL for me that's lost the most ground. Gain the most ground, it's gotta be Bellator, right? I've already talked about one and um PFL. Bellator is the obvious choice here. You could argue Combate in a way, because they have upped their ratings quite a bit and they've they've done pretty well in creating some fighters that the UFC is interested in signing. Um, but, I mean, Combate isn't... Combate isn't at that level yet. Whereas Bellator... I mean, they signed a lot of bigger names this year, right? You had Romero, Anthony Johnson. Um, you had a lot of big signings. And on top of that, you had the coming out of A.J. McKee, which it's unfortunate that, again, he didn't get the recognition he deserved. He did in the hardcore MMA community, but there wasn't a ton of casual audience to see his win over Pitbull. But, I mean, that's a homegrown star, and that's someone that could potentially start to bring in casual fans. Um, It's just a matter of getting enough eyes on him. I think the move to Showtime and the deal with Showtime is very big in that regard. It will help in terms of cross-promotion. I'm sure you'll end up with boxing matches, right? MVP will go box somebody on Showtime Boxing, vice versa. Yeah, it's got to be Bellator. Um, The CBS merger, CBS-Viacom merger definitely helped in that regard because now you've got a bunch of synergy. You've got some easier internal deals that can be made rather than having to deal with two separate entities. Uh, But I I think even outside of that merger, they've, they've made some big leaps and grounds to solidify themselves as a clear number two to UFC's number one and gain up some ground. That being said, in terms of who actually gained ground on the UFC, no one. If anything, the UFC's competitive advantages were more pronounced than they have been 
in the past decade this year. They had the best year they've ever had. Um, they killed it in terms of if those pay-per-view buy numbers are true, the 8.6, 8.7 million, um, you know, they killed it in terms of that. Seems that the pandemic viewership really helped them in terms of creating a new fan base and getting getting a new batch of people to become more hardcore fans because it seems that that floor for pay-per-view buys has risen for the most part. Um, got a lot more sponsorship deals, right? Crypto.com with, with that sponsorship deal, that's massive. Um, you've got, you know, Timex, you've got DraftKings, you've got, they just increase their competitive advantages by a mile, in my opinion. Um, if we're being honest, everybody lost ground to the UFC. So Bellator gained, lost the least ground, honestly, but they still lost ground. The UFC had a gangbusters year. It is what it is, right? Um, but yeah, yeah, their their competitive advantages are just getting wider and wider. Nobody actually gained ground on them this past year. All right, some other housekeeping issues we got to talk about. Again, appreciate everybody's questions. I know there were one or two I didn't get to on this episode. Um, I need to do some more research on them, and I will get to them at some point in the new year. I appreciate you sending them in. I haven't forgotten about you. I will address them when I come back after the break. But a couple of issues, you know, have come up in terms of the MMA business world we have to talk about. Um, And I'm on a limited time schedule because of work. So Jake Paul, pay-per-view buys 65K. It's important, right? Because everybody's been running around with the story. Uh, I saw MMA Mania. That's where I first saw it. Um, It's important that you do not forget the word terrestrial when it comes to these pay-per-view buys. A lot of people have been saying the pay-per-view bombed. A lot of people have been saying, you know, he's not a draw anymore. The novelty has worn off. Last time you did Woodley versus Paul, terrestrial buys were around 25% of overall buys. I think that's probably the case here. Um, I believe Nash thought that as well. Um, A couple other people did too. I'd say it's safe to assume that terrestrial buys are not that much in the grand scheme of things. 25%, so you're looking at, what is that, 260? 260 buys total? If that's the case, that's not terrible at all. I mean, it's no, you know, Conor McGregor, it's no Usman, that type of deal, but it never was going to be. It's still solid enough for what it was as a last-minute replacement fight, especially after their first fight was not very good. And this fight was very good until the knockout, right? Let's be honest. That knockout was great and will build hype for the next fight, but that fight itself was, woof, was something else. So it wasn't a home run. Wasn't, you know, a million buys, 500, 700 buys. But I do think it probably was around 250, which isn't terrible. It's not this, oh, they bombed, nobody's buying this, it's awful type of thing. Now, don't have confirmed numbers in front of me, but I trust the people I've talked to who said that terrestrial buys should be around 25% or so. 
So I think you're probably looking at a, a better number. Um, that's very important because it's very easy, especially on social media and in today's MMA sphere, that you see that number and you think, wow, it did awful. It's, you know, Jake Paul is not a draw. Doesn't matter who he fights next. It's going to be terrible. In reality, it's, yeah, this isn't what Jake Paul wanted and Triller wanted, but it's not a, holy crap, we have to reevaluate everything type of scenario. If it actually did 65K buys and only did, I don't know, another 30-some thousand uh, through streaming, then you're in trouble. And maybe news comes out that that is the case, right? I'm not saying that this pay-per-view did 250K for sure. But if if it did do at least 250, you're probably looking at, okay, this was a last notice replacement. We'll tweak some things. We'll see what we can do to up those numbers. But you're not freaking out. That is not a doomsday scenario. So before you go out there and you say, man, it's awful. Jake Paul's not a draw and all that stuff. I hate to hate to break the news to you, right? Because it's not like I'm a huge fan of this whole thing either. Jake Paul just beating up MMA guys. Um, but it's not nearly as bad as it's being portrayed in some circles. That word terrestrial is massive. You have to pay attention to it. A lot of people are just parroting 65K buy is awful. That caveat changes everything. We are in a digital streaming world, especially for combat sports. You do not, it it is not the olden days where you look and you see it on your your TV and you say, okay, great, it's on cable. I'm going to go ahead and click my Xfinity button or my uh, direct TV button and buy this. And now it's not how it works anymore. I guarantee at least one or two of you that are watching right now bought it through streaming. That's not counted in the 65K buys. I also guarantee some of you probably illegally streamed it, which if you take that into account, a lot of people watch these things, right? Uh, but, um, but yeah, important caveat when it comes to the Jake Paul numbers. Do not rule him out yet. More information may come, and we may have to amend this statement, but for right now, he didn't have a great day at the office, but he didn't get his ass kicked like everyone's saying. All right, next little tidbit before I get to my 2022 outlook. Francis Ngannou contract negotiations. have seen a lot of discussion about this. A great article by Paul Gift at Forbes talking about how the extension works with uh, either tolling extension or championship clause. Highly recommend that read. That just came out a couple of days ago um, or a week ago, depending on when this comes out. Who knows? Um, But great article focuses on aspects of Nganu's contract and how it could be extended. Uh, You also had Markel Martin on the uh, Throwing Down with Renee and Misha podcast on SiriusXM give his side of negotiations, saying he hadn't spoken to the UFC in six months um, and that, you know, he has a fiduciary duty to his client to try and get the best deal. It's been interesting to look at social media reactions to this as well as just some fighter opinions. Um, This is the best way I can describe it. And if this analogy sucks in your opinion, I apologize, but this is what I'm going to roll with. It's the end of the year. And I, I 
just going to do it. The way to look at this that may be easier to understand is if you go even farther back from looking at specifically Nganu and the UFC, but you just look at what essentially is the vendor relationship between the UFC and the independent contractors, aka the fighters, right? Think about, let's say Walmart. Okay, Walmart is a massive multi-billion dollar conglomerate retailer that works with hundreds upon thousands of vendors to stock their food, to decide where shelf space is. Through contracts, they figure out what the margins are going to be in terms of getting it at wholesale, then reselling it to us, the consumers. Walmart is insanely big, and they are the behemoth in the retail space. There are some other behemoths in the retail space, but... They have been the behemoth for a long, long time, right? Amazon is the new e-commerce one, but in terms of actual in-store retail, Walmart still reigns supreme, as far as I know. And it has for the last several decades. So if you're Walmart, right, you've got all of these different vendor relationships. You've got everything you've got to make sure in terms of finances are, are pretty much uniform because you need to be able to roll all of that up. You need to know exactly how much money you make on every product you're reselling to a consumer, and you want to do it in an easy and efficient way. You don't want to have a bunch of crazy different contracts and crazy different numbers and margins for various things because tracking that accounting-wise, making sure you know process-wise, from a legal standpoint, from getting everything signed, it's going to be a nightmare. So what you do if you're Walmart is you set aside essentially as the big behemoth in the room, you say, hey, here is our standard vendor agreement. If you want to redline this, we can go ahead and redline a couple of portions, but we kind of expect you to just go ahead and sign it, right? Now, let's say I am a frozen pizza maker. I'm DiGiorno. I've just come out with DiGiorno pizzas, something better DiGiorno pizzas, and it's like, man, this is this is the best frozen pizza you're ever going to get. Uh, I'm reviewed really well. Everybody loves my food. Uh, got got Gordon Ramsay. Uh, I don't know any other famous celebrity chefs. Got a bunch of celebrity chefs out there, uh, just telling me, man, like this is the best frozen pizza I've ever had. Sell it at a premium. Everybody's buying it. I think I have the best product out there. I go to Walmart and they recognize that I am a well-reviewed maker that everybody loves my product. There's high demand for it. And they say, okay, great. You go into the premium tier, the highest premium tier. And they're going to have different tiers, right? You're going to have the stock frozen pizza. You're going to have the butch's pizza way down at the bottom. If you know what that is, shout out to you. (laughs) Uh, You're going to have that in kind of the cheap tier. And then you're going to have the DiGiorno's and you're going to have, let's say, OJ's frozen pizza premium tier right cream of the crop cream of the crop you're going to be putting that tier in, and they're going to say great here is our standard agreement for premium tier vendors and i'm going to say well that's great but you know i know my worth here you're cutting into my margins a little bit because you want to just sell it at a particular price and I think I can, we can sell it for more and I should get more of that. You shouldn't just get more of that depending on what consumer demand is. I want a little bit 
piece of more of the piece of the pie. So let's go ahead and negotiate a bit on this. Is Walmart going to even bother talking to me? Probably not. Maybe one or two brief conversations saying, yeah, that's great. We can maybe, maybe make a slight concession here. That's all we're willing to give you. And that's it. And let's say I know that if they don't shelve my product, it's actually going to hurt their frozen pizza bottom line because I'm going to go to their competitor, uh, Hy-Vee, which is a more regional store. And again, shout out if you know what Hy-Vee is. Um, And I'm going to sell it there and I'm going to get the deal I want. And more people are going to actually go buy frozen pizzas from Hy-Vee. So all of their stores are going to be affected in that regional area. Are they going to care? Probably not. Why? Because on the grand scheme of things, if your frozen pizza line of product takes a slight hit, it's not even going to affect just your produce if you're Walmart. Right? This is a multi-billion dollar conglomerate. All frozen pizza sales are down by 10% at Walmart. They're they're going to notice. They're not going to do anything about it. They're going to try and find a way to, to fix that by finding another frozen pizza vendor or finding a way to up sales, sure. But in the grand scheme of things, it's nothing. They're going to say, okay, cool. You go do that. Bye. Here's our standard agreement. Sign it or leave. Now, why did I just go on a long metaphor about retailers and pizza and all this stuff? Well, this is the UFC and Nganu to a T. The UFC does no, no longer requires that variable revenue. They don't need the Conor McGregor's anymore. They've become Walmart. They're not the high V's of the world where that extra revenue is actually going to improve their bottom line and could make a difference. Sure, they'd love to to get more pay-per-view buys if Nganu, you know, goes out there in January, KOs Cyril gone, and then, you know, becomes a, a viral star and it starts selling, you know, 800K million plus baby buys. Sure, they'd love that money, but if he goes somewhere else, they're not going to, to blink that much because in the grand scheme of things, it's not that much. They've become that giant conglomerate. And we know they've kind of always operated like this to an extent, right? Because of the antitrust lawsuit documents that were revealed where Joe Silva basically had a set tier system where, okay, you have this many fights under us and this many wins, you're getting paid this much. And then guess what? We're going to bump you up to the next year and the next year, but it's all formulaic because they are the behemoth vendor in the room. This happens in retail. This happens in any type of services, right? As a, as a consultant, if I want to go do work with Verizon or with Salesforce or with Charles Schwab or name an industry, big name in it that you would recognize as a consumer, even if you've never worked in it, if I want to go work with them there and then they say, cool, we want to work with you. This sounds good. They're going to hand me a standard document. I'm not going to get to redline it a bunch and say, well, we really need to do this or whatever. They're going to say, no, that's great. You either sign this or, or you're we find somebody else because we can. That's what the UFC is. That's the UFC's position. So whether you think Francis is greedy, whether you think it's the UFC messing up or whatever, it's basic 
vendor relationship leverage. You don't get to do a bespoke contract with Walmart. If you were bringing in, let's say Nganu was bringing in tens of millions of pay-per-view buys, okay, then they would. Then you break the rule. But unless you're doing that, no. You get your standard contract. You maybe get a change here or there if you are exceptional. And other than that, it's sign on the dotted line or hit, hit the road. That is important to know. This applies to pretty much every business and every industry I know of. When you're dealing with small guys working with big guys. And that's the other part of this. That's why a, a union, a players associate, fighters association, all of that would be kind of a game changer because then you've got two big companies working together, right? If Walmart and Target were going to try and do a deal, well, then you're going to get a very bespoke deal. They wouldn't because they're competitors, right? But um, what's a good example of this? And I, uh, any type of synergistic relationship. Um, if you're trying to do, let's say Amazon and FedEx, right? Amazon obviously has shipping everywhere and needs trucks. And let's say they didn't have their own trucking division. They wanted to do something with FedEx. Then you're going to get a bespoke deal because then you have two big players in the arena. You're going to go through multiple times of red lines, all of that stuff. That's just how it goes. Uh, but usually nowadays you just get mergers and acquisitions. Instead of getting a deal done or a massive partnership, it, one company buys the other and we just say, all right, we're just going to absorb you because it's cheaper. Uh, people do the analysis and say, yeah, this is what makes more sense rather than this weird partnership. But if you are big enough relative to the vendor you're trying to have a relationship with, you can get bespoke contracts. Individual fighters will never be big enough to do that with the UFC. Again, unless you somehow get a guy who's who's doing tens of millions of pay-per-views. If you get a, a ultra superstar, an ultra McGregor, who is mainstream popular the instant he fights, is, is just somehow doing crazy numbers, then maybe, maybe you start to get more of that bespoke contract discussions. But... Now that they've gone from variable to fixed revenue, they don't have to do that as much anymore. They don't have to give Brock Lesnar a guaranteed minimum regardless of what pay-per-view buys so he can fight Daniel Cormier. They told him, nope, we're not going to give you that. Go back to WWE. And he did. That's how it works. They've become the behemoth. So keep that in mind when you're, you're looking at fighter negotiation and pay. Fighters don't have leverage, at least not right now. And that's just what it is. So... Don't expect that to change. Don't expect Ngannou to get what he wants. I don't know how it's going to play out, but yeah, just just keep those things in mind when these discussions come up because they will inevitably continue to come up. All right, last thing I want to touch on, and I'll do it briefly here, um, is the outlook for 2022. So obviously UFC had crazy big year. Um, a lot of other promotions had a big year Bellator especially. Um, Combate, I would say, had a big year. And PFL and one had a big year in their own right. Um, it was a good year overall, MMA. Uh, there was a lot of business changes, especially the UFC side. They've made just crazy money. But I think something to keep in mind going into 2022, in my personal opinion on this, is that the macroeconomic conditions 
are going to change. Um, I could go into a long explanation as to why I believe that uh, regarding inflation, regarding coming rate hikes, uh, past past examples of this happening in history. Um, there is an article on Politico that states the, uh, I think it's the Fed's doomsday person, it says dire warning, something like that. If you search that and read that article, I think that's a really good look into why I'm a little bit cautious of 2022. But all of that is to say, I think macroeconomic conditions are going to change. Maybe not in 2022, but probably in 2023 or 2024, if not sooner in 2022. And when macroeconomic conditions change, if we hit a recession or a correction, regardless of how severe it is, that's going to force some changes in the industry. Um, simply because, A, you've got multiple companies that aren't actually making money, aka One and PFL, uh, and then B, you've got situations like Endeavor or Bellator, um, or sorry, Endeavor or Viacom CBS, where they are trying to continually make money and trying to beat last year's profit. And UFC and Bellator both factor into that quite a bit. Bellator less so, of course. Um, but the UFC in Endeavor circumstance right now is the majority of their money. And they just had the best year ever. If we hit a correction or recession where people have less disposable income, aren't spending as much money on UFC pay-per-views, PBC tickets, hospitality services that Endeavor offers, all that fun stuff. UFC is the only real, very profitable business unit of Endeavor. The others are still not there yet. A lot of them were event-based on location, right? All all these event-based type uh, services that did not really do well the past two years because of all the coronavirus stuff going on. If we hit an economic recession or a correction, that's not going to help them either. And it's going to be hard for the UFC to repeat the type of year they, they had. Sponsorships will be huge. Um, Lining up the right stars and breaking into new markets, specifically Africa, I think will be very big. But it just gets harder. It always does. Whenever you're doing business in a recession, it's, it's a different beast. We've been on a crazy bull run of a market since the last recession we had. We're bound for at least a correction sometime soon, in my opinion. That's going to force Endeavor to do more cost-cutting measures, more adjustments to at least keep profits up for the UFC because I would imagine their other businesses get hammered pretty hard since they're not already doing well anyway. So with that in mind, I think from an industry standpoint in MMA, you're going to see scaling back of some promotions, um, trimming of quote-unquote fat, which really will be, I think the UFC will continue to make strides in contender series being their main pipeline or feeder leagues and and prospects from feeder leagues getting similar deals to contender series set up if they come to the UFC. And you're going to see more veterans uh, get cut. I, I think Kevin Lee is a great example of someone, again, 
of the type of person that's going to get cut. I think more of the top five to 10 guys that can't quite break into a title shot or a more gatekeeping right now, I think they get cut. Um, I would imagine it'd be hard for them to cut Arlovsky at this point because he's just been such a staple of, of the game, but you know, he's making crazy money per fight more than some, (laughs) almost as much as some champions just to show up. Um, I would imagine he get, he would be disgust unless he can't do to other contracts that are, you know, his contract might be bespoke because of it being grandfathered in, but you're going to see a lot of veteran guys, I think, get cut if that happens. I think more and more, you'll get less chances. You'll get um, more new guys getting pushed. Contender series, more and more people would get signed each time. They're already moving towards that, we know. But I think it's inevitable that contender series will become the main pipeline for the UFC. And the guys that get cut, right, it will... It may hurt the UFC brand a little bit if you're cutting a bunch of those types of guys, but at the same time, their brand is pretty much established at this point. It might not. Um, I liking liken it to, you know, pro wrestling again. WWE has been cutting a lot of talent that a lot of people think, oh, like how could you cut that person? That doesn't make any sense. But people are still watching their shows. People are still going to their events. It's still out there that's a again a different situation especially with the rise of AEW and all of that but I mean they're they're cutting higher cost stars or people that just fought for titles which generally in wrestling signifies they're more of a main event more important person they're cutting them I believe for cost cutting measures um and I think that's because eventually they're going to try and get sold but that's a whole nother discussion but the UFC right will will adapt those same measures endeavor will definitely pressure the ufc to say hey we've got to start cutting some of these guys that yeah they have a name but they also have managed to get up to 100k 100 100k on their contracts yeah we we can't afford that cut them are they going to be a title contender no cut them if they are okay keep them around give them a contender fight or a championship bout right away but otherwise cut them and i think that's the other effect of bad macroeconomic conditions you'll see more veterans get cut and more more pushing of new prospects into championship contention faster if somebody has social media hype behind them uh if they seem to have the skills to maybe be a champ uh chamayev is a great example i think he gets pushed by like a rocket ship um in bad macroeconomic conditions personally i think i think by now he would be in a number one contender spot which he might end up being right but again you're looking at that i think people like sean o'malley would be more in a dangerous position who's fought a lot of prospects um hasn't fought a lot of ranked guys i don't think you get that built that O'Malley has been looking for i think they push him to be like hey look you've got a name you're selling shirts you're doing well you're fighting you're fighting a number 10 guy. You beat him. Great. You're fighting a number two guy for a contendership match. And you're going to fight for the belt next. Go the Cody Garbrandt route. Right. Um, although Cody's was even faster than that, but I think that's what you get because they'll still look to cut costs. You'll also probably see UFC employees get laid off if it gets bad, but 
I don't think that will probably happen. Um, but you never know. Again, Endeavor fully owns the UFC now, so it's a different ball game. It's not a deal where they have to work with partners on some decisions or they have to risk making their partners angry by making certain decisions. They get to do what they want. And we know Endeavor has a history of laying off agents and and people uh, who were promised certain things, and then guess what? Ah, they, they cut a bunch of people. I mean, before Endeavor bought the UFC in its entirety... There are a couple stories out there about how agents were frustrated, things weren't going well, Endeavor was floundering. If they get put in that position again, they'll be looking to cut from all business units. And the UFC is a business unit, make no mistake. A subsidiary, but ultimately in the grand scheme of Endeavor, a business unit. So I think that could end up being somewhat likely. Um, Again, just because a correction will happen. Will that happen in 2022 is the big question. It may not. We may either start to see signs of it in 2022, or it may not actually manifest till a couple of years later. But that is my prediction for the overall industry. It's going to be a little bit tougher. Um, tougher for everyone, honestly, if we really get caught in that position. But outside of that, I think the sport is growing a little bit. I think the pandemic did boost things, gave UFC a wider audience that may not have been interested or was kind of forced to watch because they were the only thing on for a bit. Um, so I do think there is a bigger audience that that will consume MMA more prior to 2021. I think you will see that definitely in the first half of 2022. And I, I think you'll see more sponsorships out the wazoo in Q1 of 2022 for UFC, for other promotions. You'll also probably see similar to what one did. You're going to see PFL try and shore up some outside investment and any other, um, you know, promotions. WFL is a great example of that. They kind of are trying to get their feet wet or trying to compete. I think they're going to do everything they can to get investors in the first half of 2022 because right now VCs and investment firms and angel investors are still printing money and they will probably continue to do that until interest rates go up and you start looking at more of a shift in the market. Um, So I, I think it's, it's pretty obvious to those guys. Now is the time to strike while the iron is hot um, to try and get that funding, to try and make those moves. So I would imagine if PFL is going to do another round of funding, if WFL is going to try and get a round of funding, um, which it certainly seemed was the case based on the interview uh, the commissioner did with Hawani, I think you're going to end up seeing a mad cash grab in 2021 in the form of sponsorships and investors. I, I can't imagine you don't. Um And if the good times keep rolling, again, things are just going to keep expanding. It's going to be a fun time. But I personally think second half of 2022 is going to... Macroeconomic conditions are going to start to shift. And you're going to start to see a speeding up of a cutting older talent that doesn't appear to either be a draw or... um, appear to have a shot at the championship and be, um, again, 
continued cost-cutting measures, not just in the UFC, but Bellator, PFL one. I I don't know that you are going to see every name value guy land somewhere, if that makes sense, right? If they get cut from the UFC or they get cut from Bellator and they have kind of a name, I don't know that you're going to see them land somewhere outside of the regional scene. You may see them at, uh, you know, LXF or, or some of... Some of, some of the smaller promotions, but I don't know that everyone is going to end up in a great position. You do have Eagle FC. Um, they're obviously making some moves, right? Things of that nature going on. But overall, the sport's growing. I think 2022 might be not a great year overall economically. So it's going to be a weird situation if that happens. Um but yeah, that's that's my personal outlook for 2022. Let me know what you think about that. Let me know what your personal thoughts are on 2022 and what you'd like to see in the sport, what you think will happen, predictions. Um, I do think Eagle FC will end up becoming a talked about name in 2022, especially if they continue to sign the guys that they're, they are signing. I think they will start to rise, maybe not to a one, a one championship PFL type of scenario but they'll definitely next year be in the regional promotion conversation um i don't think there's any way you can avoid that with habib running it and the name they're signing so look out for that for sure but um yeah i I think i think it's going to be a very interesting year i also would say my last prediction there if things do turn bad fast in the overall economic market, I do think end of 2022 is when you see a couple of promotions shutter. Yeah. Yeah. If it happens fast. Um, otherwise 2023, I would imagine that's happened, but again, it's going to depend a lot on the greater, greater market at this point And some of the other decisions that are, way outside of the industry but industry is growing overall so that's great um yeah those those are my predictions let me know your thoughts on all of that all right guys well that is the end of the year fight business podcast um thank you so much again for listening watching if you're listening on spotify itunes anchor appreciate you guys as always if you are watching on youtube uh Make sure you do the like, subscribe, bell notification buttons. Really appreciate you guys watching and listening. It's been a blast. Let me know, again, any feedback on this episode. Love to hear it. Um, did I answer your questions correctly? <laughs> did I need to do a better job at simplifying explanations? Do I not need to do a random Walmart metaphor in there? Let me know about all that. Um, let me know, again, what else you want to see me cover in 2022. I love getting input from you guys. I want to answer questions that I can for my expertise and I love talking about this stuff. Uh, so thanks again so much for all the support. I, I can't stress how helpful and how amazing it's been, especially with all the health issues I had over the past year, um, really helped keep me going and dealing with that stuff. So thank you so much. And we will see you guys in 2022. Enjoy your holidays if you're celebrating them. If you're not, then enjoy enjoy the time anyway. And I will see you guys in 2022. Until then, get money. <laughs>